Hey, Sandy. Whoa. Hey, Nora. <laughs> What's up? I, I, I wanted to just start this in a way that was like a little bit different because it feels like nothing is up. It feels like everything's kind of just like grinding along into winter. <laughs> That's what's up. <laughs> yeah, literally nothing is up. It is so hot right now in LA. I feel like I can't do anything. It's like the kind of hot where you just want to go to sleep. It is that hot and nothing really is going on. But to join in your switching things up a little bit, (laughs) you know how I'm often hating on the liberals, especially because of like some shit that's happened on Twitter that like boils into my rage for the week and then spills out on Sunday on the show. No, no, you never hate on the liberals. You love them. Yeah, you're right. That's not me. <laughs> uh, well, this week, let me reserve that rage for the Green Party. What is with <laughs> Green Party Twitter? Are they all former liberal Twitterites? Probably. Probably. Maybe that's the problem. But I... So, okay. From the beginning, Elizabeth May wrote a very weird op-ed in the Toronto Star It is, the title of this op-ed is Elizabeth May, Annamie Paul told me to stay silent, but now I must say something. (laughs) Okay, so that's weird number one, because was Elizabeth May really that silent? (laughs) I don't know. Well, also, did she tell you or did she like ask you to like let her be the leader and just maybe fucking fuck off for a bit? Was she elected? (laughs) That seems like a reasonable ask. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It is. It's a. It's a. It's a bizarre article for a few reasons. One, one of which is this admission where she's like, "As I stepped down to be leader, I really desired an indigenous person to take after me." What? No. What? <laughs> to win. No. That's in the article published. Oh. I really was hoping that an indigenous person would be the leader. No one stepped forward. Instead, we got Amy Paul, who is a brilliant black woman. But it's like, okay, that's a weird set of things to write in a paragraph about yourself. But the more weird, the weirder thing is that the premise of like the whole purpose of the article is to malign Amy Paul as this person who is like draconian, authoritarian, and has been a terrible leader. And it does that by saying, the leader of the Green Party does not have any power. Elizabeth May says, as the leader, I never had any power. Green parties all over the world are connected to one another. None of the leaders have power. We are a non-hierarchical structure. It's democratic. The leader represents what the party decides democratically and collaboratively. So that is like the first part of the article. And then the second part is that Annamie Paul didn't follow any of that and is like like railroaded over party rules and the communication staff only reports to her and blah 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 and I like wrote on Twitter like both of these things can't be true (laughs) how can you have a democratic collaborative structure in which Elizabeth May has no power and then this person who's newly elected um, ends up having all of this power such that the staff stop stop being supervised by the right people. Like they only respond to her now. Like the whole HR structure just crumbled in the face of the all powerful, almighty Annamie Paul, first black woman leader. 
what? And like, I, I wrote something about how this didn't make any sense and it was ridiculous and somebody needed to write a rebuttal. And there's a Green Party Twitter and they came. They came, Nora. <laughs> they came trying to defend this weird fucking article. And I'm just like, who are you people? Go away. This mm. is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And racist. Go away. Yeah, it's it, it. I certainly would be asking questions of the editor of that piece um, being like, where where were you to rectify some of these like logical problems with the argument from Elizabeth May? But maybe that's not their job. Maybe their job is to just broadcast political uh, talking points. <laughs> That's what the Toronto Star is doing, I guess, maybe now. Um, there's an, it is an article in Radio Canada that I have not yet read. So I'm hearing this secondhand because someone I live with has been talking about it a lot. And it seems to um, add a lot of complexity to the narrative of like what happened with the Green Party. And it certainly is not telling the story through Elizabeth May's eyes. So I wonder if the increased attention on the internal problems of the party, which, of course, May has direct and indirect um, influence over or involvement with. Um, I wonder if this was her trying to get on the offensive um, in case something else was going to come out or of the other things that have come out maybe are not making her look very great. But it's always important to, to ask about timing when you see something like this. And mm-hmm. that is very curious. The other thing that is very funny to me is, you know, I'm part of a party where the, the spokespeople are not the leaders. Like that's literally baked into the party. And mm-hmm. they remind you that a lot or they remind the membership that. They remind journalists that a lot. And that that's a level of organization that really has to be practiced quite intentionally for a long time. And and Quebec Solidaire is still always struggling with the fact that it's two spokespeople sometimes do act as if they're the, the party leadership alone and will make decisions on the fly that are not necessarily uh, decisions that have been voted on by the membership. But even getting to the point where you can say that these people are spokespeople and not power like and not the all-powerful leaders of the party takes a lot of internal work and everyone needs to be on the same page so for this to come out in an elizabeth may op-ed in the toronto star which is paywalled by the way so that's also funny uh, yeah it seems pretty curious curious um is my most generous word for it yeah and the the implication that which is that elizabeth may um was always doing everything right uh through the um, I mean, she she says in the article something like I made mistakes, like there's like one like line, a throwaway line that says I made mistakes, too. Oh. <laughs> but the implication is that anything that she did was the 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 was innocent. Anything that she did that could have been thought of as wrong is innocent because there is a party apparatus that would have made the decisions behind her. And she was just following what the party apparatus said. And any decisions that Annamie Paul made or anything that would be seen as a failing of Annamie Paul's um, is directly her fault because, of course, somehow she was able to flout all of the the rules of the party. And as people are arguing with me on Twitter, you know, some of these members of the Green Party were like, yeah, well, Annamie Paul asked for more power from the executive council and the executive council voted and gave it to her. And then and then and I'm like, OK, so so why wasn't this article written about the executive council. <laughs> why is this, yeah. why is this enemy's fault? Like if I'm not saying that, like, I don't know anything about the green party. Okay. Like I like truly do not. Um, they <laughs> like whatever, whatever the actual structures are, if the problem is that, uh, she took too much power and did stuff with it that, that they didn't want her to do. Someone made the decision to give her that power. 
you know, if the, if the problem is that the communication staff is now only responding to her, that couldn't have been the, 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 the situation the entire time because Elizabeth May literally says at the beginning of the article, all, none of the staff report to the leader. So what what happened? Like, did Annamie Paul set up her own rogue payroll system? Like, I don't understand <laughs> if her supervisor, if the supervisor of the communication staff is the executive council, then that's what it is. And if they delegated that authority, then they delegated that authority. And the issue is much bigger than this one person, this one person for whom by Elizabeth May's own writing, it was. There was a, a there was a sense of using that person and the fact that that person was not going to be a white woman to say something about the Greens that ultimately, you know, uh, wasn't the way didn't go the way that they had planned. Yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. white supremacy. That's not how things work. We're actual human beings. We're real people <laughs> you know, with with decision making capacity and agency. And um Sorry you didn't like that. Sorry you didn't like to figure that out. We're not just your playthings. <laughs> I I hope that if someone's listening to this who's, a, who's an activist from the Green Party, this is what I really need. I just need this. Someone needs to write this down. I want everybody's name on federal council in the Green Party. And I want to see, like, who they've aligned with, how long they've been involved with the party, where on the political spectrum are they, where in key fights or key debates, like on Palestine, are they? I just I just need something like this. I need to map these things out. And I think it's very weird that that hasn't happened. So we're always talking about this nebulous federal council and everything kind of just goes back to them. And without actually having that kind of mapped out for us, that's where you get Elizabeth May being able to say completely fucking random stuff. And it's like, wait, 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 this doesn't make any sense. But I don't know enough about this to understand how, like, it, <laughs> what is the truth here? So... If, if, if one of you uh, folks in listener land can do that for, for me, I would, I would love that. <laughs> yes. Okay. And that is the last I want to talk about Elizabeth May on this podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe she'll do something totally remarkable. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't say it wasn't the last I will speak about Elizabeth May. I said it's the last I want to speak about Elizabeth <laughs> May. And I didn't even want this. Okay. Fair enough. Anyway, let's thank some people. Let's we show have some people gratitude. To thank. <laughs> We've had people who thank who have been patiently waiting for Elizabeth May to get out of the way. And so this week, uh, thanks to everybody um, who donated for the first time or changed their donation. And reminder, you can get an ad-free feed from the Patreon and so if you don't know how to do that, I mean, just direct message me on, on Twitter. I can see if I can help you out, but it should be pretty obvious. This week, we have to say thank you so much to Alistair, Zach, Jonathan, and Safia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, Nora. So um, did you see what Justin Trudeau was up to this week? Yeah. Let's, let's like promise ourselves to not spend more than fucking 90 seconds on this issue. Oh, Okay. Go. Or maybe we can more. Yeah, it might be, have to be a little bit more. <laughs> Justin Trudeau went on vacation. He Justin did. Trudeau went on vacation on the first nationally recognized Truth and Reconciliation Day. Uh, Justin Trudeau, after all of his pontificating about, um, you know, since what, fucking 2015 or, you know, beyond, um, all of his support uh, for indigenous nations and communities that... He decided that on this day, he would go surfing in Tofino. Yes. Um, This is, I think, one of those examples where you really see Justin Trudeau, like, for who he is. Like, he doesn't care. And 
There are so many ways that he could have not done this. He could have gone on vacation the day after or two days after or taken a long weekend, just like so many of us are about to do um, at the end of this week, right? Like like he did not need to do this. And and I think that what's what's horrible is to tell to tell people who invite you to spend the day with them because it's such an important day that you are meetings all day. I mean, that's not where you were. And so obviously that's going to create a sensation. And it's obviously going to create a sensation among people who are not using this issue in a in a in in good faith, right? So there's a lot of right wing, like I mean, it's broken by the Toronto Sun, and there's a lot of right wing people who are like, oh, blah, blah, hypocrite, blah, look at him, and who wouldn't, who probably didn't fucking recognize the day either, right? But it, 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 this is this is part of where Justin Trudeau is such a problem that he he gives so much bait to the far right who can be righteously enraged and then the actual issue becomes just about Trudeau himself and of course this was going to happen and of course journals would figure this out I mean it's also completely chauvinistic for him to imagine that they wouldn't have like are you fucked like this is not a big country um and so when I said I didn't want to talk too much about it is because I think it's gotten a lot of attention but I do think that people need to not just brush this off as like oh Trudeau made a bad bad decision uh, maybe there's some reason for why I was taking vacation. No, like this was intentional. And had he wanted to spend uh, the day uh, either at Tecumloops or Cowessus or at Six Nations or at any other location in this country where where children have been rediscovered or found, like he could have done that, he would have done that, and he chose to take the day off. And I think that he deserves a lot of criticism for that. And I think that also making that the news out of the the following days, uh, like that's 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 on him. And that sucks that he his actions took all the attention because there's a lot to continue to talk about about how Canada is doing reconciliation, I guess, for lack of a better way of of describing the process of decolonization. Um, And journalists, of course, are going to be more interested in a juicy, simple story like he spent the day in Tofino rather than actually saying, wait, 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 like, what is the liberal plan for the Indian Act? Like, what is actually their plan for the Indian Act? Or why is Carolyn Bennett still in her job? Like, like those kinds of questions. Literally, why? Yeah. (laughs) But this is not what we're talking about tonight. And I think that, um, you know, there's so we're in this weird moment where there's not really much news going on, but there is a lot of news. Like one thing I also want to just mention is for everyone in Canada who's not in Saskatchewan, Alberta, the Northwest Territories, uh, B.C. increasingly, New Brunswick increasingly, pay attention to where COVID is is happening. And don't make this like you're all experiencing the same surges. Um, In a lot of parts of this country, COVID cases are going down. Ontario notably Quebec also as well um and, you know maritimes things are are kind of stable in parts of the maritimes Newfoundland Labrador of course has had a surge in cases but what I've seen zero discussion of other than the zero discussion of workplace outbreaks and this is not what we're talking about tonight either but there's been zero discussion about the outbreaks that are happening within provincial jails and there is a, a 43 person outbreak mm-hmm. in the Edmonton Remand Center. There's a 37 person outbreak in the Toronto East Detention Center. Those are both provincial facilities. There are no outbreaks in federal uh, facilities currently, you know, according to, to Correctional Services Canada. And yes, I've seen some news about it, but but it is it is it is shelters. It is frontline services where people sleep. 
overnight to have the services, and it is in prisons and jails that COVID is the most deadly and that the, that the population is, is, is most vulnerable because of a lot of factors that are making uh, vaccination difficult. And so pay attention, spend your time telling people to pay attention to this, and let's make sure that this doesn't just get forgotten while people are kind of in this vaccine kind of heyday of, oh my God, get everyone vaccinated. Um, but of course, if you're in the Northwest Territories or Alberta or Saskatchewan, you're just trying to get by and that's totally fair too. Uh, one other small piece of news that is actually really fucking major that our listeners should know about. Have you heard about what happened at Ferry Creek? Um, the injunction? This is exactly what I'm talking about, the injunction. So the injunction expired and the uh, the company Teal Cedar Products um, uh, applied to extend the injunction that permits the RCMP to remove protesters from their work sites. The courts declined to extend the injunction, and their reasoning is unprecedented. Their reasoning is because the RCMP we're acting all kinds of a fool. <laughs> Their reasoning is because the RCMP were doing such things like refusing to identify themselves to protesters and conducting themselves in a manner uh, that is like against uh, the principles that this country would like to believe that it has. And uh, to, to me, like this is really stunning for a few reasons. I think one of the reasons that um, that this happened is because of, uh, of journalists, one who exposed that that's something that was happening. There was uh, part of the reason for uh, refusing to extend the injunction is because the, the RCMP like created a kind of area where the, uh, the journalists couldn't cross and they weren't even responding to journalists to tell them to identify themselves and refusing to let journalists cover and witness the way that protesters were being treated. Um, and so journalists really highlighting this and talking about it um, is part of the reason that it led to this remarkable decision. And just as someone who's been doing activism for a really long time and has been a part of a lot of demonstrations, I just need people to know that like this is the power of the media, right? Like the, the power of the media has a lot of power to impact how some of these really awful uh, conduct, um, these examples of really awful conduct by police uh, are able to be continued or not. And so some of these protests, a lot of these sorts of protests don't get this type of attention. And even Ferry Creek hasn't gotten the type of attention that it deserves. Uh, let's be real. Um, but um, all of this is to say more of this. Um, we, you know, I, I can count so many times that I've been faced with police officers who are refusing to identify themselves or are acting outside the bounds of the laws that are apparently supposed to control them. There are so many other incidents of this and more exposure among this, this, uh, of this type. Um, because this sort of a decision by the courts is really remarkable and doesn't happen unless um, there is some sort of exposure in this way. Because the default is to assume that it's not the RCMP that's fucking up, it's the protesters. And we all know that that's rarely the case. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I just think back to this one time, uh, like, I guess I got beaten over the back by a cop and it was like, 
I couldn't make a complaint against him because I couldn't identify him, even though I can identify where exactly in the police lineup he was, where exactly at what time, what intersection in the city of Toronto he was. The police were like, yeah, we don't know who that is. I'm like, the fuck you don't. And if you don't, wow, <laughs> like fuck you even even more. We're not talking about Fairy Creek either. There's, there's a lot of, as they say, there's a lot of these pieces of news that are really important. And so hopefully um, you're able to do a bit more reading and find out um, about all of these issues um, and ways that you might be able to get involved if that is a possibility. But tonight, tonight, Sandy. What? You know what we don't talk enough about, I don't think? Mm. I don't think we talk enough about online harassment. <laughs> no, no, I wait, think we've we had talk occasion a lot about to it. talk several times about <laughs> online harassment, but I wouldn't mind talking about it again. Yeah, well, so in the last week, um, there has been this targeted campaign, um, and it looks so targeted that it looks like maybe one or a couple of people, but either, like, they're all connected probably because the kinds of threats are the same. Um, and when you get a lot of hate mail, you can tell, like, wait, this is weird. That's coordinated <laughs> versus, like... Oh, these are random, actually. These are definitely random letters <laughs> that I'm receiving. But there's been this this targeted hatred that's been um, that's been trying to go after journalists, uh, tons of racialized journalists, women journalists in this country. And um, a lot of those journalists have been sharing the the messages that they've been getting, which um, which is really interesting because, you know, in the past, um, I know that there's like this weird kind of like acceptance of mainstream journalists that they, that they shouldn't share this stuff or if they did they would blank out parts that are identifying because I'm not sure why I always thought that was very fucking weird um so in the past week you've got this like targeted situation happening and then then the Canadian Association of Journalists puts out a statement saying that they want law enforcement to get involved huh. and yeah, and I was like, I was like wa- watching this. It was like, yes, 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 yes. And then I was like, we need politicians. I'm like, okay, your media, okay, but politicians, all right, that's interesting. Let's think through that. And and cops. I'm like, cops. What what the fuck would they do? And so then I was like, maybe you and I have to have a conversation about this in a broader way to talk about these. What what are the forces behind online harassment and what's actually happening here and why. Um, an organization like the Canadian Association of Journalists should not be mentioning the fucking RCMP as a as a body that's going to protect them because news flash the the only journalist that the RCMP is going to be protecting is not the journalists who will be the most at risk of targeted <laughs> harassment. Yeah, I <laughs> it's um, remarkable to me how much still. I mean, even after all of the mainstream discussions about policing um, that we've had in the last little bit, how easy it is to say, let's just let the cops deal with it. It is it is yeah. the <laughs> stand-in that lazy people turn to <laughs> when they want to say, this is legitimately unsafe and we have to do something about it, but I don't know what that something is. They say the police need to get involved. The police don't know what to do either, and they are not equipped to do anything about this to protect anyone. If they were, those of us who get hate mail on the regular, two of whom might be having a conversation in your ear right now, um, (laughs) that shit would have been solved like a fucking decade ago. Okay, (laughs) like when we were still students getting hate mail from, you know, raggedy dudes who don't want women to get abortions. Right. Like this is is such a problem. This kind of targeting 
from the right, from the white supremacist white specific, right specifically, um, which is what we're talking about in these particular cases. Uh, this is such a problem that requires a systemic solution. And it's a systemic solution that the people who have the power to put that sort of systemic solution in place are f refusing to even consider. The question we need to ask ourselves is like, what creates this, this situation that we have right now? What creates a situation that we have right now where people are so distrustful of the government, so distrustful of the world around them and the way that it is set up, that because they're so distrustful, they're refusing to trust what's going on around public health. And in fact, looking for someone to validate those feelings of distrust and looking for someone who will take care of them, who are offering some sort of program to take care of them. Because the powers that be, the status quo, they're not offering that program to them. Who has stepped into that void? White supremacists and fascists have stepped into that void and said, we will provide you with a home. We will provide you with a program that is implementable, that will solve all of your problems. And do you want to know who your enemy is? Here's who your enemy is. And this is how you can take action against them. If we don't understand that that is the, the nexus, like the beginning uh, like where these things are coming from, if we don't understand that that's a part of it, then yeah, sure, I guess it's like it makes sense to be fucking lazy and say, let's give this to the police, which aren't, who aren't going to solve anything because they never have. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I think we want something deeper than that, don't we? Well, you started by by talking about how this is something that people tend to reach to when they don't have the answers. And I want to spend a bit of time unpacking what that means that you don't have the answer, that you that you might look at these emails or I know that there was images of like handwritten uh, threats and handwritten threats are always very much more unsettling. Like the second you get a, a handwritten threat, you're like, OK, the person actually touched this. And it's very it's very unsettling. And, and um, you know, thank God for, for me, it's been a long time since I've gotten a handwritten threat, but I've gotten many as well in my past. Um, and. I think that, first of all, it's important to point out that it is, it's actually fine if you don't have the answer because no individual and probably no, I mean, I imagine the CAJ, the Canadian Association of Journalists statement was developed by an executive of people, right? Which is, I don't know how many people it is, like fuck, max seven people. It's fine that those seven people don't have the answer either. That, that actually makes sense that people don't have the answer who are working in the industry that has so consistently failed to support marginalized identities or racialized journalists or journalists who cut uh, against the grain or whatever, right? And, and you look at this big pile of shit and you look at these threats and you're just like, I don't know what to do. And so what, well, what, what do you do? So Sandy, you talked about the systemic understanding of where some of this hate comes from. And that's really important to, to, to understand because it brings sense to, to a lot of this. And then it also brings a bit of sense to like, what are the actions that these people might take? Because there's either the policing, the policing, like not actual cops, but the policing of people's speech, of people's, um, uh, actions, the way that they uh, work as journalists through these threats that are never going to materialize in real life. And then there's the threats that might materialize in real life. And, and they're two different kinds of threats that, that obviously have the same 
hope of impact, which is to scare a journalist, to intimidate them, to make them feel terrible, to whatever, right? And so, like, when you when you look at it through that lens, then it's like, all right, so then what is the way that we're going to be able to combat this kind of thing? Well, there's the reactive way, and then there's a proactive way. So let's talk about the reactive way. So you receive these threats, and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. I best I better call the police. It's like, as you say, the police have no idea what they're fucking going to do with this. They don't know where these people are from. They don't actually care enough to figure it out. Even if they found the person and arrested the person, which has happened a couple of times in Quebec with threats um, against the premier and the public health officer, um, then what? I mean, then they go to jail for two fucking months or if you're lucky, a year. And then what? Oh, they're back out. Oh, you're, but you're still getting hate mail. So it's like that's that's not really a solution. And that that also is not going to work because no, you, you know, none of, none of the people who are sharing the stuff is Francois Legault or Horatio Arruda. Like they're journalists, right? And they're often journalists who are women and racialized and have the least amount of power in a newsroom. Oh, that's the issue. That's the issue. It's that it's that these are people who their very presence challenge white supremacy and challenge um, all of the things that these people that send these threats uh, want to stop. And so every single journalist that they can push out of a newsroom because they're being racist and horrible too, it's a win for them. So then the question is like, all right, so then what do you do in a workplace to protect people from this kind of thing. And this is where reaching to the police makes absolutely no sense because the police are not going to like protect press freedom. The police crush press freedom. The fucking Canadian Association of Journalists just had to go to court against the RCMP, which is why I'm so <laughs> shocked to see this fucking statement. It's like the memory is like nowhere or something. But I get it. As you say, it's like because you're not sure exactly what to do. So then it's like, okay, so what, like, what kind of protections exist for full-time journalists who have who have a, an office, who have security probably protecting the front door, who have um, an editor who also could be more involved in, and maybe maybe editors need to be more public facing so that there's more than just like a name, a byline. It's actually, and this piece was edited by this person. Spread out the hate a little bit. Maybe don't leave people by themselves to be targeted. Uh, or maybe newsrooms, uh, a newsrooms management have to understand how they are also perpetuating these structures within their own newsrooms. And the reason why these these tactics are so effective is because managers buckle all the time. They buckle all the time. And it just happened to be in this case it was Maxine Bernier, who's too far right. And then they're like, oh, 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 actually, no, this was too far. But but it's not too far when it's Jason Kenney telling people to attack journalists, right? I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa don't do that. But I mean, give me a break. Like, the, this they the far right knows this. This is a tactic that works because managements of a lot of different broadcast agencies buckle under the pressure. And until management is like, you know what, you can fucking try to get these people fired. You can send off emails. You can do all this stuff or whatever. We will always have our journalists back until you get to that moment. Of course, this is going to be a tactic that people still continue to employ. And so where's the conversation about what happens within a newsroom to protect full-time workers, part-time workers, freelancers, which are always the ones that are last one thought about, right? And then where's the conversation about <laughs> things like 
you know, cutting a camera crew down to like two people so that the only person who's standing there going live, talking into the microphone is also the person that then has to react when someone says racist or sexist things in their ear walking by on a live hit. Oh, right. Because because management cut those crews down to only two people rather than three or four or five. So, you know, we got to make those systemic connections because if we're going to reach the police as a fucking option in the media, we are fucked, like just 100 percent fucking fucked. And then there's just no point even fucking trying if we're at that point. You know, when I when I heard that um, they had suggested the police as like the solution for this, you, you know, besides rolling my eyes, I thought back to times when I was dealing with what felt like more credible threats with my for myself or people that I worked with, or even when when Nora you were dealing with um, really intense online hate, and I was talking both to you and people in your circles about like what we could do, and. One of the first things all of the time is to protect the person who's experiencing um, that sort of onslaught of hate, because part of the goal is to psychically injure that person and make it so that they are too nervous to, to do the work that they were doing that led to this sort of onslaught of hate in the first place. And so for those people... For those times, whether it was me or someone else, one of the first things that we did was, as community members, try to find people to take care of these accounts and be the first people who would see what was coming through and sift through what seemed credible and what didn't so that the person who was receiving all of the hate mail didn't have to experience that firsthand all the time. And that may not be the solution, a part of a solution for everyone. Like some people, I know, Nora, you're, you were like fine with receiving all of the things. Um, and I wanted to read them all. Them. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even do it. For other people, <laughs> <There's too much. laughs> yeah, for other people uh, it, that's not the way that their psyche works, that they would need that sort of support. And so for an organization um, that represents journalists to just say, like, let's get this to the police. Like, I, I, I don't know if this is not happening. I truly hope that it is. I hope that they're also coordinating some supports that will look like, hey, I will be the person who goes through your Twitter or checks your Twitter or checks your email or whatever it is first so that you don't have to see all of that stuff right away. Like there's certain ways that these sorts of organizations can respond to support these people. And I know that because we're able to do that out in the community for one another. So if we can do it, people with literal resources <laughs> can definitely do it. Yeah. And that's so important, right? Taking care of one another is really critical and, and having that group of people who you know you can call on to, to do those kinds of things for you, to take over your inbox or to take over your direct messages. Um, I definitely know that there's people that that's helped a lot when they're when they find themselves in the eye of this stuff. And then there's also like what kind of um, training is being done specifically for people who are going to receive more hate mail. And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if CBC has a tr has a training module for marginalized journalists who will like how like wh what to expect and what can you do when you get this and here's the support that we're going to give to you. I suspect there's nothing. 
right? And instead, because there's this um, obsession with the with the JSP, the Journalism Standards and Practices, um, it's even harder to fight back against this because you don't know if what you say to fight back is actually going to be used against you and is actually going to be used to then get yourself disciplined. And I feel like that's like one of the most difficult things is like when you don't know uh, what is going to get you in trouble when you when you when you want to say something because you're under attack, but you don't know if you're going to get in trouble from your boss, then you're just like in a in a box, and then it's really 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 difficult, and and that could be very psychological damaging. And so having workplaces where, where the, where management is, um, is not only aware, but like forced to read all of these messages and forced to spend time with these messages or spend time understanding what journalists are receiving, um, I think probably would go a long way to getting them to understand that if if a journalist were to quote unquote lash out, which I totally support, by the way, (laughs) I think that people have the right to respond however the fuck they want without being afraid of um, management uh, coming down on them. But if if there was this freedom and this, this support, I think that that also would go a long way. And and the, the goal has to be to minimize harm, not just the, the personal harm, which is really, really important to, 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 to minimize. And then the only way you can talk about that is when you bring a lot of people in the room that have experienced this to then discuss together, to, mm-hmm. to, to generate ideas and brainstorm. And that's where you're going to start to come up with some really solid um, ways to, to help and support one another. But then you also have to ensure that newsrooms are not locations where they are going to punish people or they're going to react in the way that these tactics are intending for them to react, which is what they're doing far too fucking often. Um, And in absence of all of that, you might sit back and go, fuck, I guess we got to call the cops. (laughs) Which, I mean, I, you know, again, like, I don't know. I just don't know how I don't know how a single journalist. I know that there's two kinds of journalists in this in this in this fucking country. One who would call nine one one and one who would not (laughs) when they need a cop, but they don't need a cop. Um, And I know that the the ones who would call 911 for a cop are the vast majority, which is part of the problem. Um, but there, there needs to be some more like open conversations about this. And they, they shouldn't always be led by the people who are also always getting all the hate. That's just putting too much responsibility on people's shoulders. Unless you're like there and you're ready to do that, then of course, then you should be talking about that. And I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not a member of the CAJ. I don't know if that's the location where you can have this kind of conversation. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of an obvious location because that's, I mean, they're the Canadian Association of Journalists. <laughs> but um, but maybe what this has to be is actually just like just people who are always attacked online getting together and saying, OK, like, what does it look like for you? What kind of resources do you have? What about you? What kind of resources do you have? What do you wish you had? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then starting to figure out how to how to how to support each other better and then how to map this stuff out. You know, I <laughs> I just got there was this 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 big dump of um data out there. Um, I, I don't know anything about it, but someone just emailed to me. The Pandora Papers? No, 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 not that. <laughs> that is also very interesting. Yeah. Someone just emailed <laughs> to me a cache of um, what a fascist had on me and like apparently lots and lots of other people. Um, and so I got this this message with like 58 pictures of me over the years um, and tweets Whoa. and yeah, and, and all this kind of stuff. And it was really interesting because it was just like, oh yeah, I see these pop up all the time. Like this is obviously targeted. There's obviously a coordinated effort to attack me. This is obvious. Um, and I think that when you, when you start to see this as coordinated attacks, as being always drawn to some sort of organized movement, whether that's through a Facebook group or whether that's through a political leader like Maxime Bernier or whatever, then you start to get an idea. Okay, no, no, this is literally people trying to silence the press. This is people trying to silence racialized voices, women voices, 
voices within journalism that um, that are either critical or that are not white or that are maybe challenging white supremacy in some way. And then it's like, yeah, then you're not going to go to a white supremacist organization like the fucking cops to fix that. And and you're probably not even really going to go to parliament either because fuck, parliament doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. Justin Trudeau's had six years almost to come up with some sort of solid anti-hate plan and he's failed. So, you know, we can't pretend that anyone in power who benefits from these structures and who benefits, frankly, from these kinds of um, abusive tactics being um, leveled uh, towards individuals to fix it. They're not going to fix it. And, and we are the only ones who have in our in our toolbox, in our creativity, in our collective capacity to imagine, we're the only ones that have that ability to figure this stuff out. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'm just like calling a conference or something <laughs> next, which I'm not <laughs> doing. But if someone did, I would totally be supporting that. The other thing that I think that um, they could call for is just shifting how we tell the news, just generally. I mean, part of the reason why it's so easy to target people in this specific way is because stories about white supremacy and stories about racism are always ancillary stories. They're always (laughs) tacked on on the end and always given to particular identities of journalists, which makes sense in some ways. But if those identities of journalists, folks who are from BIPOC communities black or indigenous or other people of color or more women were in uh, the production teams who were be able to decide what was news, maybe maybe it would be become it would become more embedded in the broadcast and we could not just call out Justin Trudeau for his white supremacy when he skips out on Treason Reconciliation Day and goes to Tofino, but we can talk about that every day and how it shows up in his leadership literally every fucking day and all of the different things that he thinks are important and what he thinks that he can just talk about during an election period and ignore later. If that is central to the discussion, if white supremacy is central to how we are reporting the news and politics, it becomes a lot harder to target racialized uh, journalists uh, for, for hate. And so, again, you know, we encourage these newsrooms to take a fucking look and see how you might have been a part of creating a problem where people, one, uh, don't see white supremacy interrogated regularly enough that when they see it interrogated only when it comes to this one party that seems to be the only ones talking about their issues uh, or, or responding to what their concerns are. Um, yeah, that's going to that I'm not at all um, saying that in any way that any of this stuff is justifiable. I'm saying how um, a white supremacist media can contribute to the problem, contributes to mm-hmm. the problem. And if it if if white supremacy, if interrogating white supremacy is at the center of what we're doing instead of just tacked on as ancillary when it becomes its most obvious that sets up a situation that allows for these particular journalists of these particular identities to be targeted. Mm-hmm. So stop fucking doing that. Stop fucking doing that. Change up the production teams. Change up the way that you're talking about the news. And don't only talk about white supremacy when it's easy to do so. The news shouldn't be easy. No one goes into journalism saying, you know, I my goal is to do literal nothing. 
but just tell the easiest amounts of things that I, I just tell the easiest stories about the easiest issues out there. Journalists, people who go into journalist, journalism school, so far as I know, I considered it once. I, can, I decided not to. But <laughs> most of the people that I know, including you, Nora, thought to themselves that they would be having a real impact on the way that society works and on the way that power operates in society. That, yeah, that, that hope evaporated for me in journalism school very quickly. <laughs> but if that does remain for some of you who are journalists... Well, geez, like we have a white supremacy problem. Mm -hmm. We have a fucking white supremacy problem. And it it is far bigger than just Maxime Bernier's party and how they interacted um, with Justin Trudeau, his party, and the disdain that they have for certain elements of our society. It's way bigger than that. What a beautiful thing it is for you to be able to 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 show that. I, not that we set out to do like our fifth or sixth or tenth episode on media is so white in Canada, but it has been a while since we've named it specifically. <laughs> and I was watching very closely on September 30th on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation how many media organizations use that day for self-reflection. And... I no one did. I mean, I didn't see fucking anything. So if you if you you know if you've got an example of an article that that bucks what I'm saying, please send it to me. <laughs> but you know, you've got this this white this white supremacy media establishment in Canada that has deep 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 roots in a lot of things that are wrong with Canada. I mean, you know, the the founder of the Globe and Mail was like the guy that was that workers had to go on strike with in this very uh, famous strike to fight for the eight-hour workday, right? And, the, and and they had to fight against George Brown, the first the first um, publisher of the of the Globe Mail. But, but George Brown was ended he ended up being killed by one of his employees, which is part of the story that a lot of people don't talk about. <laughs> so there is also that history in Canadian media. But the um, the the fact that that journalism, I'm not going to say individual journalists because I think that this is all so embedded in a lot of structures. So journalism sees September 30th as a day where they're going to talk, you know, to Indigenous people and talk about reconciliation and talk about maybe projects that are happening or whatever. And th- that's all really good and and me and should happen like all the fucking time. But but ju- but journalism has done so much damage in this country and has done so much work on maintaining can. Canada as a white nation, that for not a single media organization to be ready to interrogate that, to openly talk about, wow, you know what, we went to the archives and we're going to fucking, we're going to be accountable for some of the, the positions that we've held. I mean, I mean, some of these positions are not that fucking old, like the Globe and Mail denying genocide as recently as 2018. Um you know, no one's there yet. And so when we're talking about white supremacy within within media, like it's that. It's also the entire fucking last 20 months, 21 months, and how the pandemic has been written about, has been broadcast about and talked about. We've talked a lot on this podcast about that. And and no one is ready to have that conversation. And so, yes, the the collateral damage of the media establishment's refusal to, to talk about racism, to be accountable for its own racism and be accountable for the way that it constructs Canada as a white nation is going to be racialized journalists. That is going to be the reality. And you know, this is where journalists need to really understand that connection, that connection between the the hate that they receive 
and the 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 structure of these organizations and then and then say yeah this is this is systemic and then of course not to have these problems fall on their shoulders for then organizations like the CAJ or other organizations um, unions obviously unions have a huge role to play with this so the Canadian Media Guild and Unifor uh, to to then force management to take these issues seriously. That's the only way that we're going to be able to address this and make it better. And I really, really hope that um, that we're closer than we've ever been. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What if, a weak is, fucking is, hope, Nora. Hope deeper. <laughs> God, what the fuck? <laughs> My, my hopes tend to be my hopes tend to be kind of realistic, but like no, okay, yeah, maybe fuck that. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> I refuse to accept that. You got to go deeper. Well, I mean, I don't have any hope actually for them for management, but I do have hope for people <laughs> being able to fucking force management to change. And so, whether that is unorganized groups of of journalists, whether that is high profile journalists that can use their voice in a specific way, whether that is organizations like the CAJ or the unions, those are going to be the bodies that are able to force management. And no matter what media company in this con- in this country, and yeah, I have hope. I actually have a lot of hope for those groups to be able to do that work. Um, but we can't just expect that management is going to do this without that pressure. That's that, that having hope in that would be, I think, idealistic. 